We live in a world where we make decisions all the time. How many decisions did you make before you came this morning? Lots? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that you actually made quite a lot. But many of them probably weren't earth-shattering. Yeah, tea or coffee for breakfast? Do I have jam or marmalade on my toast? But we make decisions. It's this process of making decisions that I want to talk about today. What are the morals, the ethics that underpin our choices, our decisions, the actions that we take? This is our fourth week in our series called Follow Me, Discipleship in Our Modern World. And this week we're going to be looking at ethics. But firstly, a quick definition of ethics. And I'm going to use a definition provided by the Ethics Centre. Ethics aims to answer this one big question. How should I live? Ethical belief shapes the way we live, what we do, what we make and the world we create through our choices. Ethical questions explore what Aristotle called a life well lived. Ethics isn't just an exercise for philosophers or intellectuals. It is the core of everyday life. We ask ethical questions whenever we think about how we should act. Being ethical is a part of what defines us as a human being. We are rational, thinking, choosing creatures. We all have the capacity to make conscious choices, although we often act out of habit or in line with the views of the people around us, the crowd. We could all make conscious and conscientious ethical choices if we wanted to. There are times when those questions become challenges which we just can't solve alone. Complex ethical problems can be individual and private or widespread and systematic, involving groups, organisations and the whole communities. Many people think that they can figure out these things for themselves. After all, we've reached an age of scientific sophistication, haven't we? Of great intellectualism. So that by using our minds, we should be able to come up with the right answers. However, it seems a bit like this. The smarter we often get in some things, the dumber we often get in other things. At times when I look at the news and current affairs, I think that we're actually facing a crisis of morals in our culture today that threaten to actually undo us. We have not only lost sight of the difference between right and wrong, but even more concerning is that we seem not to even care whether we have or haven't. We don't care whether something is right. We don't care whether something is wrong. At this moment in history, I think that we have become so preoccupied with our own individual rights and whether something feels good to me then hang the consequences for everyone else. 
We all kind of fall into this in one way or another with the choices that we make, the actions that we do. It's really tempting to be standing at the front here and to say that all we need to do is get back to the Bible. And I do believe that that's actually a really incredibly important part of the answer. We do actually need to come back to Scripture. But I have heard people say things like, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Only if that was so easy. Unfortunately, the Bible doesn't speak on every issue. And not all decisions are between what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes we have to choose between what is good and what is best. At other times we're forced to decide between what is bad and what is worse. And these decisions are difficult. And it would be great if there was an, always a nice, neat, biblical verse that would give us an answer to any of the given situations that we ever face ourselves. But we have all seen people line up on opposite sides of ethical issues and both quoting scripture. Scripture, unfortunately, has been used to justify some terrible things throughout history. Slaves, wars, mistreating others because of differences. You can keep on going. And at times what people have done is that they have an opinion and then they try and overlay a biblical quote to make their opinion right. To justify an already held position or belief. What makes it even more difficult is that there are some things that we that are just not mentioned in scripture. Smoking's not mentioned. Some things that in the Bible are strictly forbidden but are completely ignored by Christians today. Getting tattoos, eating pork, lobster, shellfish, men having long hair, women cutting their hair, women praying with their heads uncovered. And Paul actually wrote about their heads were to be shaved if they prayed with their head uncovered. The Bible talks about stoning disobedient children Stoning adulterers, not wearing jewellery, observing the Sabbath on Saturday, etc., etc. But we don't actually go by these rules today. And then technology is changing faster than our moral reasoning can actually keep up with. What does the Bible say about cloning, in vitro fertilisation? Harvesting embryos, organ transplants, designer babies, cosmetic surgery, gene therapy, gene modifications, any of these things. So what is good and what is bad? What is right and what is wrong? How do we decide upon this? If you think it's difficult now to make good decisions, think how much harder it's going to be for our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, as technology and the world changes, as we drift further away from scripture. I actually want to jump into something quite very, very topical at the moment. If you've been 
listening to the news and seeing what is happening around the world and what even happens in our own country. Terrorism is an incredibly prevalent thing at the moment. But what I want to talk about is how do we as a society look at stopping terrorists and terrorist acts? How do we do that? Because if you have a look at the news at the moment and the, and the, the shows around news, you know, current affairs shows, talkback shows, all those kind of things, everybody has some kind of comment on how best to do it. How do we do this? You know, I, I was listening to a couple of commentators saying that, that if you're suspected as a terrorist, then we should view you as guilty until you can prove yourself other than that. And the burden of guilt is on you and you have to prove that you are innocent. Not the police, but you. This flies in the face of a very long-held belief that we have in our country. That was embedded within our legal system. That you are innocent until proven guilty. The burden of the proof is on the police to provide evidence of your guilt. And that a panel of peers need to agree that that evidence is correct. And that the, proven, the proving of guilt has happened. Some of you may actually be saying, well, what's wrong with this? They do bad things. But let's look at this at the ethics of this for a moment. Let's presume that, that now they've brought this into, the, into law, into practice. That if you're accused of ter terrorism, then you are treated as though you are guilty already. You were going around minding your own business, doing your everyday activities, coming to church, etc. But somebody reports you as a suspected terrorist. They report you to the authorities for whatever reason. They didn't like you. You annoyed them one day. Whatever it might be. Our ethics have changed on the assumption of innocence here. Suddenly you are seen as a terrorist by the authorities. And you are started to be treated as such. You now have to show that, that you are not a terrorist. You, you, you have to account for your every move. You have to account for all of your internet searches or phone calls that you have. You have to account for why you've done certain actions, where you've gone. You know, our civil libertarians would be jumping up in arms at this, if it was them. You've eroded my personal freedom. There's this whole thing about going down a slippery slope that is used in ethics. Now, I'm not going to debate whether the, the intellectual um, ability to make one choice after another choice after another choice allows us to follow down that, but the, the whole notion of a slippery, choice, a slippery slope is that one action will start to lead to another action until it continues on and on and on and cascades 
and you start making more choices that lead you down a certain path. And so this may actually be that suddenly not only are you being accused of this, but as soon as you're being accused, the authorities freeze your bank accounts, cancel your passports, lock you in jail. I've heard all of these things as responses that we should do to terrorists. This whole idea of going, you know, of a good society suddenly doing something that is actually bad. That is what we're doing. That is the nature of ethical choices. What do we do? How do we handle this? Every decision that we make is a decision in and of itself. But believe it or not, we are influenced by all our past decisions and choices. Now, wow, that's heavy, isn't it? Bet you weren't expecting that this morning. But this is what our kids are talking about. This is what society is looking at. Decisions and choices that guide and shape our individual world and society at large. Ethics is a part of life. The way we behave, the morals that guide us and our society. It's a part of everything. It kind of guides us. So I want to put up a, a, a few approaches to ethics that are, that are being used, that may be used in this situation. I don't want to go in every situation. I don't want us to delve into the too much. But the first is a duty or rule-based ethics. The law says it's, that it's this way, so I must follow the rules. And everybody else must follow the rules. Now, that's pretty good, isn't it? We think that's a pretty good way of doing that. The rules are right, they're there. But then again, when we look at our Bible and we hear the Pharisees imposing rules on everybody and saying that that's what you need to do, and then we look at Jesus challenging the system of ethics based around duty and rule-based ethics, then we realise that Christians throughout all of history have challenged duty, rule-based ethics when it has been warranted. Christians were hiding Jews in World War II and lying to authorities. Now, they broke the rules. But they did it for a good reason, didn't they? Which kind of then brings us into the next kind of notion about how we look at ethics. You know, we've got ones, systems and rules, duty, that need to look after ourselves, look after the world. That's the duty that we have. And so we need to build our ethics the way we respond to people and that. The next thing is, well, sometimes when we look at that, the end justifies the means. You know, do we use that as the basis of our ethical choices? This ethical reasoning looks at the eventual outcome of an action. So that you know, it's okay because in the end it will be good, and that's often what you know that situation I was talking about in terrorism there. This is where people are starting to work. They're going, well, the ends will justify the means. We'll have a safer society. But we may have eroded a whole lot of personal freedoms. We may have actually put 
people in jail who weren't meant to be in jail. We may have put people in hardship who didn't deserve it, but the ends justifies the means. Or does it? See, when we use this kind of ethics, you can actually get away with truly horrible and detrimental things. Does the end really justify the means? Then another kind of ethical decision-making framework for ourselves is called situational ethics. There's no real set rules that always apply. Every situation has to be looked at separately to determine what is right and what is wrong in its own context. The overarching principle is to seek to do loving things in each and every individual circumstance. But it sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But it often degenerates into a subjective positioning of what feels right at this particular moment based on my own ideals, not on everything else and other people. It becomes very individualistic. There are actually many more ethical theories and ethical ways of being and most are helpful in some way. But let's have a little look at Hebrews 13, verses 1 to 6, and what it can tell us about some frameworks for ourselves for, for our ethical behaviour. At first glance, Hebrews 13 may appear to be just a, a grouping of unrelated closing thoughts in a letter. But this is not the case. The writer of Hebrews not now begins to give some ways in which believers can live out their faith, live out their lives with one another. It's actually a set of ethics for us. The, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrew reminds us that there is a standard of conduct that is found within the word of God. Let me just quickly read it to you so we can refresh our minds what this is. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? See, it brings us to this whole notion of what might be some basis for our ethical choices when we look at scripture. And we're going to break it down into two major things, public ethics and private ethics. Public ethics within the church. The primary moral standard, the primary ethical standard for the church is love. What were we meant to do? What was the first thing that we were meant to do? Keep on loving one another as the brothers and sisters. That is our prime ethical moral thing that we as a church, we as Christians should be doing. It is a public thing that we should be doing. To love, loving one another as fellow Christians. The word translates 
brotherly love, the brotherly love that is used here is, is actually Philadelphia. Is composed of these two philos, the tender affection, and Adelphos being brother. So looking after your brother, your compatriot, the person next to you. It's a special New Testament word for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is a natural overflowing of us being saved. When a person is saved, there is a naturally drawn to fellowship with believers. Jesus actually said that the presence of this brotherly love, that's what proves to the world that there is faith. For by this that they will know that you are my, my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is not love based on personal liking. It's not a personal thing. But it's based on our shared relationship with Christ. To love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Another public ethic thing is to do this, is to love the stranger. Moving from the community out into the broader context. So the community of faith out into the broader community. Is to love the stranger, to exercise hospitality. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Our first response is, is to our brothers and sisters in Christ, and our responsibility doesn't just end there. It is to the stranger, by the definition, someone who we do not know personally. Hospitality means being friendly to the stranger, not just bringing your close friends over. Christian hospitality differs from social entertaining because social entertaining focuses on the host whereas hospitality focuses on the guest we shouldn't get wrapped up in the phrase rendered by you know that is for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels it brings us back into scripture where abraham fought and entertained angels without knowing it. Back in Genesis 18. It's actually taking it all, all the much more further for us. It's saying we really should be treating those around us as though we, they are special. They are above all things. We should be showing hospitality to those around us. The point of this second half of the verse seems to be that we will never know how important it is or how far-reaching a simple act of kindness may be. And it moves on and says, you know, even remember the, the prisoners as if you were chained with them. Those who are mistreated even if you've been mistreated. It's actually saying we need to put ourselves outside of ourselves. This is, this is our framework, our public ethics, to love one another and to love the world. That's a framework. How do we do this? 
And sometimes it's incredibly hard for us to do that. But we need to realise that that love is based upon Christ Jesus and his saving action for ourselves. And I said there's a public ethic, but then there's also a personal, personal ethic. And the writer of Hebrews goes on and says that there's some personal ethics here, there's some standards here. There's, there's commitment in marriage. Marriage is to be honoured among all and the bed undefiled. Here we see that, that, that a commitment to marriage is about how we look after our relationships, how we treat our relationships with importance and commitment. And secondly, how do we, how do we follow through on our promises, on our commitments? How do we act in a way that will maintain our commitment that we have made? Thirdly, it shows that we treat others with respect honour and value. It says even more about the way we are to behave outside of marriage as well. How important is it to respect others in our relationships that we have with them? How important is it to honour our commitments that we make to others? How important is it to value the other person? The call to being a Christian is to demonstrate in their lives a radical difference in understanding commitment, not only to marriage, but into all our relationships. Christians are called to be outrageously pure. And the other personal ethic that we have is contentment contentment in material things to be content with what you have let your conduct be without being covetousness to be content with such things as you have for even he himself I have never I will never leave you nor never forsake you Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21 says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. It's a change of behaviour. It's a change of our mindset. Following the way of Jesus, of being a disciple, is a very rewarding experience. But as you can see, living this out in our modern world can be challenging. How do we make our choices? What do we base them on? How we live out our life with good ethical and moral behaviour living our life in a way that fits within the will of God as we find within scripture for ourselves is the call of every Christian. Are we willing to let our own ethics be ruled and guided by God's grace and saving love? So let us just pray.
Lord God, we ask that today that you help us to understand that you are part of all our lives, that you can encourage us, that you can guide us, that the choices that we make have an impact on the world around us, have an impact on the people around us, have an impact on, upon our lives. Help us to make wise and sensible choices in our lives. Help us to have a good understanding of our own personal ethics. And may that be in tune with your ethics for our life and our world. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.